forge your inner armor. Welcome to the Inner Armor Podcast with Dr. Timothy Royer, where we explore ways to train our brains and bodies to become dynamically resilient so that we can all, from professional athletes to ordinary people, perform at our potential. Well, Doc, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, we're still at the compound here. We're I still love in it. The, yeah, in the piney forest out here. And uh, the listeners may hear a bird chirp every now and then or a coyote howl or something <laughs> like that. But this is a beautiful spring day sitting in the trees oh, and the pines. And, and uh, you know, we're talking about, you know, normally you would talk about things like neurophysiology in a, in a, in a university or a laboratory, but um, this is a different environment to talk about it. But it's really interesting because it, it really has to do with real world stuff. I mean, people 10,000 years ago were figuring stuff out and solving problems in the woods long before they were solving problems in a lab in Cambridge. Mm-hmm. So part of how humans learn and grow and develop and problem solve is very practical. And a lot of times we make that very academic, but it's a very practical thing. Which brings us to an interesting story you were sharing with me before we started recording here. Something that happened for you last week because you were working on a project that was not academic and not in a laboratory and was very practical. And yet is a great illustration of of learning and how the brain works and how it processes information. So you want to tell us your your story about what happened to you last week and how your brain tried to process some new tasks and challenges. Yeah. And uh, I guess this is what you do when you're com- you combine neuropsychology with building is all of a sudden you start to think of research and, and what's going on as you're working. So as our listeners might know, uh, I have a builder's license uh, in Michigan currently in building a house as an owner down in uh, Charlotte area. And uh, we're almost done, a couple weeks out, which is exciting. And uh, I do this stuff on the side periodically just to kind of clear my head and kind of regroup. A lot of good ideas come out after I do these big projects. But last week, it was time to put on all the doorknobs in the house, okay? Close to 35 different doorknobs in this house. And so I went to Lowe's, got my huge shopping cart full of these doorknobs and I get them there and walk them into the house, drop them by all the doors and I'm going to start on them. And so before I start, I said, okay, I'm going to time myself so I can get an idea, you know, how long is this project going to take? I got an idea that I can get through a doorknob in maybe six minutes, seven minutes, but I never really timed it, right? So I rip open the first one. Don't look in the instructions because I put doorknobs. Who needs instructions? Are you kidding me? Nobody needs instructions. It's a doorknob, (laughs) right? right? You know? Exactly. Instructions are weaklings. Yeah. (laughs) Golly, man. And I've put so many doorknobs on before. Well, you know, with new technology, people make doorknobs slightly different. So I start working on this thing and I'm timing myself. And as I finish, I realize. I looked down at my timer and it's been 31 minutes and 21 seconds. I'm like, what in the world? How this is going to take me three days to get through these doorknobs. I'll be here forever. And I'm like, wow. But as I went through, because I hadn't read the instructions, I really missed some key steps that I had to go back and redo. 
and kind of start over again and redo and start over again. I was getting kind of frustrated. And I was like, why is this taking so stinking long, right? So I go to do the next doorknob, but I read the instructions and I realized, oh, they're doing this now with these, this little pin that I didn't know about and these other things. And I get through that doorknob, the next doorknob, and it's four minutes and 41 seconds. I'm like, what the heck? I went from 31 minutes to four minutes. I'm like, that's unbelievable. What happened? My hands are still the same, right? My muscles in my hands are my same, the same. The tools are exactly the same. The door is pretty much, for all intents and purposes, the same. The doorknob is the same. But I'm different. Like, what is it about me that's different that I go from 31 minutes, highly inefficient, right? Highly frustrating to just over four minutes. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this again. You know, nobody's watching me, but now I'm talking about it, I guess. So I start my timer. Three minutes and 30 seconds. So it wasn't I just learned, right? I tr- like we talked about last time, it wasn't just a, that I trained but now I'm ingraining something in my system that there's more capacity in there than I actually realize. Like I think, okay, I've got it figured out. I'm going to be just over four minutes and I'm already doing the math in my head. How long is it going to take me to do these 30 some doorknobs, right? Well, now I'm faster, you know, three minutes, 30, three minutes, 40 seconds. Wow. Okay. What's happening? Uh, Well, now I'm doing subtle changes to how I'm setting the doorknob up. I'm finding out this other mechanism that I didn't realize that would make it go faster, right? So then I'm like, I got this. I am going to go as fast as I can. I'm just going to be lightning fast. How about you? I'll be like two minutes and 59 seconds, right? Well, I take off and in my speed, I forget a couple things and I have to restart over and I look down and I'm now at six minutes and 40 seconds. And I realized, well, what did you do, Tim? Is you lost your focus. You you didn't stay focused on the details enough to stay efficient. So in everything that we do, there's this like balance between speed and efficiency. (laughs) And we, I do this a lot in sports with, we, we measure speed and accuracy, right? Like I don't want an athlete who's always accurate, but he's really slow. I also don't want an athlete that's really, really fast, but not accurate. You know, there's a, there's an old adage, right? Um, from certain sports that slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Yeah. Right. Because when you repetitively do things in a sort of slower manner, you groove the motion and you don't have wasted energy. And then the more you do it, the quicker it gets. Right. So you learn to do something by, trying to do it very deliberately. Mm -hmm. And because you're doing it very deliberately, there's no wasted energy, wasted motion, wasted steps. And then that ingrains and it gets faster and faster and faster. So if you want to learn a skill, be deliberate at first, make no mistakes, groove those steps in, and it gets faster and faster and faster. Yeah. And that's what we'll do with like the precision side of our program is we want to develop binocular skills we then test speed and accuracy. And so we know what an elite quarterback, the fastest they can go, but they have to give up a little bit of accuracy 
to be able to maintain the speed that they're going to need because they have to make decisions so fast. And this is the, the roadblock that I hit with a lot of quarterbacks. And in the NFL, 11 of the starting quarterbacks I've either assessed in one way or worked with, so I know what these numbers are, right? Is that it's the balance between the two that makes, make them efficient. But you'll get these quarterbacks because they're very cerebral many times that get so hung up on perfection that they lose the speed and they saw it perfectly and they analyzed it perfectly, but there wasn't enough time left to actually initiate in that three seconds what they needed to to deliver the ball, right? Or I have another kind of set of quarterbacks who like, they're making, fat, they're making these fast decisions, but they're doing it without all the input. And so their, their accuracy goes down. So we have, we can measure this and we measured it in our vision testing. And so we want to be around a 0.4 in our task, 0.4 seconds uh, visually with an accuracy of around 85%. That that's the sweet spot for that particular position and where it's going to be. It's going to have some errors, but it's not going to have too many errors. And I would say that formula applies to a lot of every area of our life, really, when it comes to processing speed. You know, um, we don't want to be obsessing, okay, to the point that we slow down, but we also don't want to be going so fast and impulsive that we're making mistakes that all of a sudden my capacity of a, of a three-minute doorknob now goes to a six-minute and 40-second doorknob, not because I can't work fast, but I made so many errors because I wasn't focused on the two. So you bring up a couple of things there about speed and the processing speed and the errors. So if we were to think about the old adage too, that the, sh- the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, mm-hmm. right? So in our brain, electrical current races around our brain along these pathways. And in a sense, the shorter and more direct those pathways, the faster Mm -hmm. um, the electrical current is going to travel. If the electrical current has to travel six inches through your head to get from this to this through a circuitous route, it's just going to take longer than if it goes, you know, a quarter inch from this point to this point in your brain, right? Right. So a lot of this comes down to grooving those pathways as efficiently as you can so that electrical current flows through those, your brain in the most efficient routes at the fastest possible rate, correct? Yeah, there's actually a great study done um, around 2012, 2013, where they, they looked at gray matter and white matter in the brain before EEG training and biofeedback training, what we do a lot of, where we're trying to teach these new pathways, ingrain these pathways. And then after 12 weeks of training and imaging, real live imaging that measures gray matter, white matter, the white matter is more like the the phone lines that are uh, connecting everything. And the gray matter is more like the storage areas, but literally significantly more gray matter and white matter after doing these neurological and physiological training operant conditioning on the brain, which speaks to a very interesting component about how we can change our brain without like going in and doing surgery or adding something to it. 
So let's talk about the neurophysiology, the anatomy and neurophysiology of this. Let me, let me kind of lay a couple things down here and then you can comment on mm-hmm. those, right? So we, we talk, and I'm sure our listeners are familiar with the idea that our, our brain uh, runs on electrical current. Mm-hmm. Electrical current speeds their brain. But, you know, and we use analogies all the time about computers and machines, but our brain isn't a computer or machine because the electrical current doesn't don't go down copper wires, right? How electrical current propagates through a wire is very differently than how, different than how it propagates through, you know, our brain. So within our brain, the electrical current basically leapfrogs or it's a little bit like passing a baton in a mm-hmm. relay race. So a neuron, which is a brain cell, has an electrical charge in it, and it wants to pass that electrical charge on to the neuron next to it. Again, it's not a continuous thing like a copper wire. So it has to hand that charge to the next neuron. Mm -hmm. And the way that it does that is ions, which are charged particles, move from neuron A to neuron B, but they have to jump this gap. Because there's physical space between them, right? Mm-hmm. The synapse, right? The synaptic cleft, this gap. And the way that it does that is that the neurons in, the, in their walls, you know, membranes or cells, they have these little doors or gates. And each of those, then what has to happen is the door or the gate from one neuron has to open so that it sh- shares the ion, it hands the ion off, like passing the baton in a relay race to the next neuron, right? And then so on down the chain. The problem is, in order to open that gate, the gate has a lock on it, just like the doorknobs that you were putting in last week. And there's two kinds of locks, right? One is called a ligand lock and the other is a voltage lock. So again, think of the door or the gate. And think of the doorknob and the keyhole. There's a key that opens one, and that's a ligand, which is a kind of molecule. So when neuron A wants to hand the attaches or releases a molecule attached to that ion, and that click unlocks the gate and the next neuron, and it moves on. A voltage gated, a voltage gate is when the, the charge, the electrical charge between those two neurons is at a certain state, the door is open. Yeah. And the ions can flow. So we have ligand-gated neurotransmission and we have voltage-gated neurotransmission. And that's how electrical current flows through our brain. And when the gates don't open, the the electrical current slows down or it stops or it finds an alternate pathway. So if we imagine three neurons, neuron A, neuron B, and neuron C, A has the ion charge and it wants to give it to B, but B's gate isn't open, so it goes to C, right? But now it's taking a longer route, which is why certain neural pathways in our brain are slower, longer, and some are faster. So it's all about basically finding ways to optimize the electrical transmission in our brain as quickly and by the most efficient route as possible. And that brings up this issue of ligand gating versus voltage gating. Okay. So dear listener, thank you. There's the anatomy 101. Now doc is going to explain how 
that plays out in psychology, psychiatry, and performance development, because it turns out that boy, a lot rests on this whole ligand versus voltage gating. Yeah, this is really, you did a fantastic job, Greg, uh, of describing that for the listeners. And um, it is an amazing thing. And this is so important for people to understand because most people are living in a model where they just think that the way that they can deal with their issues is a ligand-gated response, which is an external chemical change that, or a, a chemical change that's happening. Yeah. So it, that ion, a chemical, floods that part of the brain. Yes. And then that, that chemical, the molecules of that chemical attach that ion, open, unlock the gates. Yes. And so as long as that chemical is present, current is flowing. When the chemical isn't there, current, the current slows down. Flow. Right. And that's the key piece is this, this ligand-gated one, the way the keys to open the gates are chemical changes. The voltage-gated is the actual kind of conduit itself is, is more efficient in how it's managing energy. That's why we're always measuring electrical activity in the brain because we want to see what's going on in these voltage uh, channels. And this may seem like, you know, super confusing, deep stuff, but let's just take it down to how we're doing change or how we learn can either happen from the ligand or the voltage. This is, there's more complexity than that, but just I want you to just stick with that model because it's super important. Because your medical culture here in the United States is pushing you further and further downstream to think that the only way I can deal with this is to be doing a ligand-gated change. So let's just, to clarify, Doc, now these chemicals, some of them are naturally produced by our brain. Right. So for example, one of the ligands that opens up a lot of um, gates in the frontal cortex is dopamine. Right. And I'm sure our listeners have heard of dopamine, right? It's this natural produced thing in our brain that gives you this sense of energy, euphoria, high, good feeling. Another one is serotonin, which is associated with, you know, positive. Acetylcholine. Yeah. Yep. All these kinds of things. And when you're, in, in some sense, your brain naturally floods those things. So when, you know, we're talking about learning, when I say to, when I'm training my dog to sit or fetch and I say, hey, you know, sit, here's a treat. And I pat him on the head and say, you know, good dog dopamine fills the front of my dog's brain and he goes, wow, you know, if I sit, I get a reward, right? This is right. operant conditioning, mm -hmm. right? Classical conditioning. And, and so he wants more of that. He wants more of that. The problem is, right, sometimes we don't have enough of those chemicals. We don't have enough dopamine or serotonin, which, which brings us to pharmacology. Right. To introduce a replacement for that synaptic cleft to be able to open the gates. Um, but if you step back and say, could I make the voltage gate more efficient, then the demand might not need to be synthetic. I might be able to be producing, I can produce enough naturally that these gates are able to open because the voltage gate or the, the learning is taking place that that neuron doesn't need all that extra uh, 
serotonin. So a serotonin, when we take an SSRI, that's a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. And that reuptake is talking about those gates. So, so, so basically, real quick there, right? Serotonin becomes one of these chemicals that opens these gates, but it naturally dissipates quickly. Yes. Right? So that um, your brain, when it's functioning as it normally would, releases just enough serotonin to be able to facilitate the charge, and then it essentially dissipates. It gets uptaked back into the cell. But some people who need more of it are prescribed a drug or a category of drugs called SSRIs, which prevent that serotonin from being dissipated or taken back up into the cell and leave the level of serotonin higher in their brain. Now talk about SSRIs, because this is a pretty controversial thing in psychology and how it's affected people and how many people are on these. Yeah, so if all you're looking at is trying to introduce more of that substance, but you're not working on the voltage-gated piece, so the actual transmission or the learned pathways or uh, learning new pathways, things will atrophy over time, okay? And one, you can create a tolerance for that. But two is if you take that away, there's nothing that's been formed. There's no new learning that's performed. So I can give you enough stimulant that you will focus to the point that all you do is focus on one thing, okay? And you can do that for 15 years. You can take it every day. You can fill those ligand-gated you know, pathways in ways that they're opening up and the, kind of the signals are being transfer, transferred from neuron to neuron. But immediate, when I take that away, because we haven't worked on the, the voltage-gated side of things, then you're right back at ground zero. Nothing was taught. Like so, you, so as long as you're on your meds, you can function. Take the meds away. You're, you could do that for 20 years. Like I have people that I've worked with that have been on SSRIs for 20 years. We take it away and they're, they're depressed again. They're anxious again. They haven't learned how to actually change that voltage response. So it's not just a one thing. And we're get like I was at the pharmacy the other day uh, down in Jacksonville. And there were so many pills that the shelves no longer could handle the pills. And down on the floor were just bags and bags and bags of prescription to the point that the staff were literally like on a little pathway. I mean, it was mind boggling. Like this pharmacy was not built to manage this amount of chemicals. And I'm thinking, we're so ligand-gated focused, but that's not how we learned to learn the alphabet, right? We can learn physics, but can't we learn to focus? Well, it's, you know, there's a lot of people starting to ask questions, you know, 20, 30, 40 years af after this kind of became a big part of our culture about not only, you know, the value and impact and potential negative consequences of this, but also who benefited from creating a culture where we have bags of pills on floors and everybody is on a pill, right? you know, and, and what, to what degree have we created an economy uh, and have drug companies sort of given us one kind of pill to treat one thing and then another pill to treat the side effect of that and a third pill to treat the side effect of the other side effect. 
right? And those those side effects come from you. There's always going to be a reaction to opening certain gates, right? And so then other gates get impacted by that because they're all talking to each other. And so if it's this foreign substance, see, back before SSRIs, you would flood the gates with so much stuff that the side effects were so bad on the tricyclics that people were like, yeah, I'm not depressed, but, you know, I can't function physically, right? I'm constipated or my heart's racing or I'm having, you know, this insulin response. Yes. And so what happened was the flooding of the synaptic clefts got so, it was so broad and less specific that it created the side effects. Well, even with the SSRIs, you can't, it's not just like one size fits all because every brain is different and you're not doing anything to go upstream to address how that neuron is firing on a voltage, which is, which is what we rely on for every other form of learning. Okay, so what happened with me, with my doorknobs, was not that I created a ligand-gated change. You didn't take a pill that made you a better doorknob installer. No, not at all. And actually, I was kind of anxious. I was kind of frustrated, right? And had I reached for, you know, a, some type of street drug or Xanax or whatever because I was uptight, my time probably wouldn't have got faster because I tried to like use something to slow the system down because I was more anxious or frustrated. But in the process, I would decrease my ability to be quick and move. So there's always... It would take you four days, but you wouldn't care at that point. Exactly. Like, whatever, you know, that's all good, man. You know, the house might smell a little different. Okay. (laughs) But, um, But what we're getting at here is there's always a price to pay for that. Like I can get this if I do it externally, chemically, but I'm going to be... I'm not learning to do this. I'm not learning to be better at this. I'm not learning ways to manage my depression, my anxiety. We keep talking about SSRIs, which is a type or a category of drugs. What are some examples of these SSRIs that, that a lot of people are taking? So you've got, you know, you've got your Paxil, you've got your Prozac, you've got your Celexa, you've got your Zoloft. Um, the things that the drug company, these things aren't very different. Uh, I mean, there's some things when I'm working with a patient where we need to use a medicine, which I see as more as a temporary band-aid to get us from point A to point B, but that's not the long-term fix. There's ones that I prefer that have different types of side effects, less side effects, different stages of development. But what the drug companies do is they just come out with a new one. They give it a new name, give it a interesting like character to associate with it. We watch the commercial and we see all the smiling faces, but we don't listen to the 30, 40 different things that are being said during the commercial. You know, I, Like real fast at the end, this thing may cause you to, yeah. to die. <laughs> to die. <laughs> no, suicidal. So I did this at a lecture a while back was I played, a, um, a, I think it was for Risperdal or something. I played the commercial, but as the commercial was playing, I actually put the words of what the symptoms were. So, you know may cause racing thoughts, may cause uh, problems with managing your blood sugar, may cause hallucinations. And yeah, all these terrible things may cause a tentacle to run out of your forehead. No, it was, and, <laughs> right. and it was very interesting because the audience, they started kind of like laughing as I was throwing these things. The, right. the person saying it, but you don't hear it. You're just watching the visual the pictures. happy people that get right. it. Yeah, yeah. And we all of a sudden started putting the words up there. And, you know, it ended with may cause 
uh, suicidal ideation that could cause death, right? And it's like, are you kidding me? Right. Why? Because this isn't inside of you, these changes happening. You're not right. learning these changes. This they is artificially. A, yeah, this, this artificial substance is messing with the synaptic cleft and the, and the chemicals in there, but at a cost at times. And not at just an immediate cost of side effects, which maybe you don't have any side effects from your medicine, but what's the long-term impact of you not actually learning how to deal with that? So it's very interesting. See, d- depression just isn't a chemical thing. Okay. Or if it, it isn't just chemical, there's also these other things that happen in a learning type of environment. So if you take depression and somebody has a true depressive episode, okay, they are going to have a 50% chance, which is higher than the normal population of having a second depressive episode. Okay. So they go through the episode, even if they're not treated a depressive episode, if it doesn't have, you know, suicidal stuff with it, those kind of things that cause, you know, life and death situation, usually about 18 to 24 months, somebody will come out of their depression. I mean, it's kind of like another illness, but you now have a 50% chance to get another depressive episode. What was very interesting is that this just was a chemical thing, right? You know, I just need a little bit of this and that solves that problem. Is if you have a second depressive episode, you now have a 70% chance of having a third depressive episode. If you have three depressive episodes, which is really concerning because depression has been termed the great imposter. So as a child, it might come out as learning problems. As a teenager, it might come out as substance use. Uh, as an adult, it may come out with, you know, not able to hold down a job, but it, it comes out in different ways. It hides itself, which is a great podcast that we'll do down the, the way is the great imposter depression. But if you've kind of missed these things and you haven't like treated them correctly, if you have three depressive episodes, you have a 90% chance of having depressive episodes the rest of your life. So, so step back for a second. Is this, if this is just the pill bottle, the amount of chemical that solves the problem, why is this thing getting stronger? It makes it worse over time. You know, there's and, other things going on. And you start talking about the percentage of people that are, that are on SSRIs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't, I don't know what the real stats are, but I think a lot of the anecdotal thing that you're talking about where you go to the pharmacy and see just bags of pills stacked to the, you know, on the floor. One of the things that, that seems to be there's a lot of evidence for is that in the last three years since we had lockdowns, that the number of prescriptions for SSRIs for people to cope went through the roof to the degree that a a very, I don't know what the exact percentage is. I don't want to say it on the podcast because I could be wrong, but, but a very large percentage of America and a very large percentage of young people to get through the lockdowns were stuck on SSRIs. That was the coping strategy. And now what are you going to do? Take it away from them? Right. Um, because to your point, let's, let's transition to the voltage gated thing because now you can't take it away. Um, because you haven't really, to your point with learning how to install the doorknobs, you haven't really learned how to function. You haven't really adapted or evolved your behavior. You know, you've put a chemical bandaid or you've used a chemical crutch or aid 
that facilitates uh, neurotransmission of electrical signals, taking that away is going to be crippling to the person unless they learn how to, to be able to do these things on their own. And how to find other ways to work on their autonomic nervous system work upstream, right? So I want the listener to think about also, you know, you go to your doctor's office, you have this anxiety disorder, you have this depression. I mean, the two things that you're going to be offered, okay, and what you've been offered for the last 40 years is, you know, get on some meds or get into therapy, okay? Both are decent, okay? But what I want you to step back about and look at is, those are two totally different changes for dealing with your problem. And that's what you need to see is they're not in the same category. These are different things. The medicine is primarily looking at the ligand-gated change, okay? The therapy is more of a learning process or, or things that you're going to learn about yourself, things to do differently. And it, that is very, very good. I would say... The downside of that is the therapy is so far downstream that you're trying to take thought processes, emotions, very helpful to do, but there's such a latent or a delayed time between working on that and what's literally going on up in the neuron at the firing. And that's where we want to work upstream and say, can we work on the autonomic nervous system that makes these changes? and it's important to realize those are two totally different things. One is a chemical. One is a relying more on some type of voltage-gated change that is so far downstream that sometimes it's very hard for that to stick or last. What we do is we're doing that change all the way upstream. At the same spot, the ligand-gated change is happening. In the chemical, we're doing it in training the voltage, the elasticity, the resilience of that neur neuron to not be so dependent on a certain volume of them. So what we're saying is that when brain waves are running, because they run at frequencies, right, amplitudes. So, so when your brain is running at certain frequencies, um, the, the voltage effects of that, how that electrical current is going to either make, increase what's called neuroplasticity, so neuroplasticity, meaning that the electrical current fly, flies more frequently or the mm -hmm. baton gets handed better from one neuron to the other. And they form these pathways, right? So these, they form these synaptic connections. So again, neuron A, neuron B, neuron C, all of a sudden that pathway between A and B gets formed and it gets grooved and it gets reinforced. And if you're doing that because your brain is operating in that frequency already, right, right, then what happens is learning becomes easier. So we were talking about this before we started recording. You know, a lot of times people can learn from the extremes, right? So there's certain things I'm going to remember because they were traumatic. Right. Right. Like it was like, I was like super stressful and traumatic. I'm not going to forget that. But that may not be the best kind of learning. Right. It's stuff that I may not forget, but it might not be efficient. Right. Whereas if my mind, if my brain is learning in a calm state, like you were putting together the doorknobs, if I do step A, step B, step C, step C, or, you know, whatever, right? If I put them together this way, t -t 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 and I've got it, the doorknob on three minutes, 
Same way if I'm learning to read, same thing if I'm learning to play the piano, same thing if I'm learning to hit a baseball, whatever the case may be. If I'm learning language, if I'm learning in a state where the current is naturally flowing smoothly through my brain, I'm going to more readily form those neural pathways. Neural transmission will happen better and the learning will be deeper and more, and more resilient. So I'll learn at a deeper level. And what we're saying is with inner armor or with our concierge Royer neuroscience approach, what we can do is, is put our clients into a position where they're going to, their brains are going to be more receptive to learning. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Yeah. And, and they're they, going to learn in a more receptive way that's going to create more permanence of, of those learned responses, right? Yeah. And our, our clients actually see. <laughs> yeah. They see either the actual voltage gated change because right. they, they, they see the, the neuron firing in either an overexcited way or a parasympathetic way or in an ideal speed. Or we're measuring that in how the rest of their physiology is happening, like their cardiovascular activity, which there's more connections going from the heart to the brain than there are from the brain to the heart. So when I'm reading what that heart's doing, it tells me a lot about what the brain's doing, right? Looking at the respiratory functioning and realizing that in order for those voltage-cated pathways to have more plasticity, to be more receptive to learning, to be more resilient, that oxygen flow has to be good. You know, 90% of my energy comes from oxygen, right? And the brain is consuming 20% of the energy I make. So I better make sure that's, that the oxygen intake is good. So we're working on all these upstream things to make a difference. We talked about, we use this example offline where you were talking about, um, you know, the quarterback has three seconds. And this linebacker who says like a refrigerator. He's the size of a, I mean, look at this guy, the size of a commercial refrigerator. <laughs> exactly. You know, he's like six foot six. <laughs> he weighs 300 pounds and he moves as fast as a FedEx truck. Yeah. And, and this guy is going to just, he's going to pile drive you into the ground. You do not want that refrigerator running over you. Right. Right. Yeah. The quarterback's got to go, man, I got to take in all this information, make all these decisions, react, do all this stuff while I'm hyper conscious of the fact that not only is this guy going to drop me, he may snap my leg. He may give me a career ending injury. Yeah. So he's processing all these things and he can't process those at the 31 minutes I was doing the doorknob. No. Right. Because he's toast. Right. Right. Um, he needs to be able to process it at the two minutes and 30 seconds. Okay. He also needs to stay calm enough that he doesn't do a, one of these six-minute responses, in a sense. I'm using the examples from earlier. Sure. But what happens for a lot of athletes and a lot of people is they say, well, there's anxiety related to that event. Well, sure is there anxiety related to that. So I'm going to try to deal with that anxiety and decrease it through a ligand-gated change. So that quarterback, the night before the game, decides that um, he's going to use marijuana as a way to calm himself down and he finds out he's a little bit more calm but because that ligand gated change has caused that calmness in him now his reaction time is toast right so there's always you can get rid of one thing but now you're you're going to lose your head because you're not reacting well enough so it's it's 
these athletes that rely on trying to lean into ligand gated, they, they get where they're using chemical changes. They get really dissatisfied with that over the time if they're at a, at a high level as they realize, one, they grow a tolerance to it, two, their side effects, and three, they can't stay in that perfect balance of speed and accuracy that we're looking at. You know, something that we haven't sort of explored yet, and maybe we need to explore this in a future episode, is how emotion ties yeah. into learning, right? Mm-hmm. So there are certain things that I learn that have emotions attached to them. You know, um, I'll go back to my dog. When my dog um, sits or retrieves the ball and I pet him and I say, good dog, and I give yeah. him a treat, right? He's filled with all this dopamine and positivity and it's like this emotion. Um, and so he's going to want to do more of that. Okay, that's him. But there's certain things that I learned that are going to have positive emotions if I do this. You know, good feelings are associated with that. So on the one hand, I I think I want to do more, but it works the other way too, because there's things that have really negative emotions associated with fear, anxiety, Mm -hmm. right? All these things. And those, those are going to affect how and what I learn and how those pathways are grooved too. Um, sometimes in negative ways. So what I'm doing is a lot of times I'm reinforcing very negative things because the negative emotions make such a strong imprint mm-hmm. um, that I'm imprinting uh, negative lessons into myself. And this is this is where you know you can talk to somebody uh, who'll say, "Hey, I, I just keep hearing all these sort of negative scenes in my head." Um, we, we you know, and I you and I joke a lot about playing golf, right? And you go the the, the time where you say, oh my gosh, you know, all I can do is think of all the bad things that happened when I hit the bottle, the ball in the water. So the next time I'm on that par three and there's yeah. you know, water between me and the green, all I can do is just think of all the bad things that happened here before. And those become imprinted on me. And instead of hitting the ball onto the green, right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to hit into the water again because the strong imprint of that negative emotion I actually am going to do the same thing I did before. Mm-hmm. And so when emotions get in, and we get into the anatomy of that, and we can talk about that in a future episode, because we start talking about the anatomy of how panic attacks, you know, panic happens, mm-hmm. right? Where there's a sort of intellectual process, you know, I'm, I'm processing information. There's an emotional component that we attach emotions to the information, and then it becomes a physiological component when our body reacts to those emotions. And this is a very complex cycle in which a lot of times all we do is groove negative behaviors and learn right. negative lessons. And so, you know, how we learn and how these things get imprinted on us, and we have to be very conscious of that for ourselves and also when we're, we're teaching or mentoring or coaching others. Yeah. And I think, are there things that can be done chemically to help you with panic attacks? Yes, there are, but they're not dealing with the major upstream component of how am I developing resilience for this so that if I take that away from you, are you really right back where you started? I mean, think about what we, what we do as humans developmentally. We come into this world completely helpless, knowing nothing right? We know nothing. We don't even know how to like walk, right? Or talk or do any of this stuff. Next thing we know, we're making an iPhone. Like what we're doing from a growth standpoint 
consistent, if we just step back and look at what we've learned, what we do, that's just, that's just consciously, unconsciously what you're doing to manage your body temperature, your blood sugar, cardiovascular activity, oxygen intake. It's just insane what we're learning and doing, which are all these more or less voltage kind of things. Why wouldn't we go back to the brilliance inside of us? And instead of, you know, looking for that pill, so the best medicine for the brain is itself. And, but the, the difficulty there is you have to give the brain the ability to see itself either correctly or incorrectly, you know, is what's it doing wrong in its swing, okay, that it needs to fix. And that's where if we give it feedback, it's a brilliant device that can take that feedback and learn. And that's what we have to do in all these clinical disorders as well is, is mirror back what's going so the brain can see, oh, that's what you want me to do differently. If I can do that, it can learn. Another fascinating study is this one they did with 11,500 people. 11,000, that, that's not a small study. 11,500 people over nine weeks where they just taught them how to breathe in such a way that their heart would be coherent. It would have a perfect balance of sympathetic and parasympathetic. Decrease in depression of 56%. Decrease in anxiety by 48%. That's not a ligand-gated change. Right. You're not even going to get that with 11,500 people if you gave them all SSRIs. That yeah. won't happen, right? So it's fascinating. There's just other brilliance and wonder inside of us that maybe, and I don't want to have a conspiracy mindset here, but maybe in the attempt to make more money someplace else, we've, we've kind of been sucked into, well, I can't do this. Right. Yes, you can do this. It doesn't have to be the bags of prescriptions. And again, I'm not opposed to medicine. We're just using it. We're, we're negating the beauty and wonder of the brain and how it can function. Well, you know, we're sitting out here in the, in the beautiful woods and we think about the Native Americans who were here 10,000 years before there were prescriptions. Yeah. Right. And yet people somehow coped. Somehow the world went on. Somehow people uh, built homes and lives and civilizations without pharmacies, <laughs> yeah. without companies giving them SSRIs. So there are ways that we can cope. But what I think the, the, the you know, the brilliance of your insight, Doc, is to to give that assessment and monitoring, right? Yeah. This is really where we're using EEG, we're using some of these other techniques, we're using these technologies to monitor what you're doing and then train you to operate in that effective zone, thus being able to learn and groove those pathways to be able to get your nervous system, both voluntary and involuntary nervous system, to be able to get your brain, to be able to function in a sort of efficient way yeah. without relying on those artificial uh, injections of chemicals or artificial introduction of chemicals to elevate the level of uh, open those ligand gates and allow mm -hmm. transmission. So yeah, um, and you can learn more about that by going to forgeinnerarmor.com and learning more about what Inner Armor has to offer, what Royer Neuroscience has to offer to begin to train yourself to learn and grow 
and develop capacities that you never knew that you had. Because as Doc always says, your ceiling is so much higher than you imagine it to be. And uh, we can help you to develop those uh, skills without relying on those, you know, those bags of pills from Walgreens. Yeah. You got this out there. Let's go. Let's go. You're an amazing creature. And let's use these things inside of us to make us stronger. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Doc. Thank you. This has been the Inner Armor Podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Would you please follow or subscribe and make sure to leave us a review or comment. You can learn more about Inner Armor, Dr. Royer, and how to perform at your potential by going to forgeinnerarmor.com.